You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, we get the lowdown on what's sizzling this summer in Toronto. From Marseille to the Adriatic coast, we put your questions to our concierge service. We take a ride from Vienna to Trieste on one of Europe's most historic railway lines. After the long way of negotiating with different parties, planning this train, it was really a, a relief to see that the train now really runs. We learn about how hotelier Sonu Shiv Dasani is creating barefoot luxury in the Maldives. Putting, you know, the guests' shoes in the shoe bag before they've even stepped on our jetty. It creates that fantastic suspension of disbelief. And Monocle's Andrew Miller sends us his oracular spectacular from Delphi. Delphi was where they came to be right and wrong, to launch humanity's ongoing inquiries into what we think we're doing here. That is all to come on The Concierge here on Monocle Radio in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bounds. And today we start the programme in Toronto, where this summer sees a whole raft of festivals from music, food and ice-cold beers and presumably some nice Canadian whiskey as well to Bastille Day celebrations. So with the lowdown, and much is promised here after that introduction, here is Sean Muir, Director of Rooms at the Kimpton St George Hotel. Sean, welcome to The Concierge. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to speak with you guys this afternoon. So we better put our listeners, we better give them a bit of context. You are Director of Rooms at the Kimpton St. George Hotel in Toronto. Forgive me for asking, what does the Director of Rooms do? What I do in my role is oversee the operation of the hotel. So I manage my front desk team. I oversee the housekeeping department. Overall is just overall guest experience from the operational side of the business. Festivals-wise, and in terms, I mean, Toronto's got a super strong cultural scene. I'm sure music festivals and anything outdoors is pretty high quality in Toronto. What's the offering this summer? We actually just wrapped up our Pride weekend, or obviously Pride month is the month of June. And we just wrapped that up on Sunday with a huge Pride celebration. We had the Pride festivities all the way through the month. And that wraps up with a massive parade on Sunday. So we just wrapped up with that this weekend. And obviously that draws in a huge crowd of guests from obviously not only Canada, not only the outskirts of Toronto, but very international guests traveling. We're well known as an international destination for our Pride events and festivities. So that's fantastic. We just wrapped that up. And on the same note, obviously, going into the summer, we have great events such as Carabana, which is sort of a Caribbean-focused event that really celebrates and recognizes the Caribbean flair and, as you said, the diversity and, and everything that we have in this city. So that's sort of a very, very fun, lively event that takes place in the summertime here. And then we have our fan expos, which, again, drives in international guests, which is always fun to see everyone uh enjoy themselves, they get in their cosplay, they dress up to their favorite characters. And that again, really drives a great excitement and fun buzz in the city. I'm going to have to intervene here and ask what, if you had to man a St. George float for one of these cosplay expos, what would you be dressed up as? Would it be fluffy? or Would it be superhero? You know what, that's a a great (laughs) question. I have to probably take that to uh, growing up. I've always been a huge Batman fan. So I, I might have to put some type of spin on a Batman character and take that on. I think uh, <laughs> obviously had such a huge influence on the culture here. I'll see more recently in the past years, but 
that was my main man, Batman. So I'd have to say him. In terms of food and drink, what's happening in terms of sort of big events this summer? Or maybe there's a few neighborhood restaurants that you've sort of alluded to that are doing things or that you have partnerships with that you can recommend our listeners to. Whenever we do have guests coming into the hotel, obviously our goal is for them to get out and explore. The Yorkville areas, we're sending everyone to Yorkville to just sort of sit on a patio, people watch great restaurants, whether it's sort of Canadian-fused um, sort of French cuisine on the Bastille Day sort of theme with a restaurant called Sazafraz, great Canadian sort of fare with that French influence, amazing, amazing uh, Italian culture in the city as well. So lots of amazing Italian restaurants that we love to sort of have our guests go to enjoy. Themey Wine Bar in Trattoria, fantastic place. We have a great relationship with the beautiful Italian coffee shop called L'Espresso Bar Mercurio. They do fantastic coffees, great sort of light fare lunches, and obviously the Italian treats, uh, I can't go without saying, which are absolutely fantastic as well. So then we also have those spots where, again, we get back to that great cold sort of Canadian beer that we love. There's a Hemingway's sort of pub that's located right in the heart of Yorkville. Great atmosphere, always sort of a, a great people watching a lot of I want to say famous people, but people love to sort of, who are of influence in the city, love to tuck away in there and have a drink and try and get away from the hustle and bustle without sort of being bothered too much. So it's an endless list of of opportunities for guests whenever they come to the hotel or to the city for that matter, just to sort of get out and explore basically anything their heart would desire. It's available in the city, which makes it such a fantastic place to obviously work at, but also live in as well. Sean Muir from uh, the Kimpton St. George Hotel in Toronto. Thank you so much for your time and for all your wonderful recommendations. Toronto is a wonderful place. The concierge will be there soon. Thank you very much, Sean. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And now to our very own Little Black Book, the part of the programme where we look to our correspondents around the world to answer your questions. The concierge desk is open for business. And first up on the line, joining us from Skopje, the capital of Macedonia, is Jarko Ristic. Lovely to have you on the programme today. I feel like Skopje has warmed up. It is summer in Skopje, am I right? Yes, it is. <laughs> what are we talking? Are you under a parasol? Are you in, in an air-conditioned room? Are you simply being wafted by a fan? I'm always in an air-conditioned room when summer heat hits Skopje because it gets really, really hot here. Yeah, I bet it does, right? It's an interesting place. It certainly will be on the concierge's list of places to visit. I'm getting a nod from producer Tom through the glass. So that is now legally binding. It's a work trip. (laughs) Uh, Jarko, so you are off to the south of France, I understand, this summer. What is your question for the concierge? Yeah, so I'm thinking about a late summer vacation in Marseille. And I was actually surprised at how little travel information I was able to find about, you know, the second largest city in France and one of the oldest in Europe. So I was just wondering what city district you guys would recommend for my stay there. And since I like uh, visiting the beaches very early in the morning and late in the afternoon, when the sun is usually, you know, still friendly and moderately warm, I was just wondering what you would suggest I do during the day in between so that, you know, I stay away from the sun, but still keep busy and have fun. Beautiful. Thank you for your question, Jaco. And with the lowdown on Marseille for you is one of Monocle's correspondents in France, Annick Weber. Bonjour. Thank you for getting in touch. Marseille is a great choice for a late summer escape, offering the perfect combination of beach and culture. We would suggest you start by staying the first few nights of your trip in the centre of town, at Les Chambres de la Relève 
in the 7th arrondissement. The owners of the popular La Relève neighborhood bar have just opened four cozy guest rooms in the upstairs part, each featuring a sunny color palette and plenty of Provençal flea market finds. From here, the Plage des Catalans beach is just a 10-minute stroll away, so you can pop for an early morning swim before heading back to La Relève for a traditional French breakfast of croissant, café crème and citron pressé. You can spend the rest of your days in town learning about Mediterranean culture and civilizations at the Musée Museum, shopping for made-in-France homeware at the historic Maison Empereur, which has been around since 1827, or browsing the well-curated magazine selection at Deep Coffee Roasters Kiosk on Boulevard Chave. The colorful farmer's market taking place on Wednesday mornings in the Notre-Dame-du-Mont neighborhood is worth a visit to as is the daily fish market at the Vieux-Port. After a few rather busy days out and about town, you deserve a bit of downtime. So, for the last few nights, check into Tuba Club, a beach club with a handful of guest rooms in the old fisherman village of Les Goudes on the outskirts of Marseille. You can jump straight into the Mediterranean from the cliffs outside and... At the end of the day, you can enjoy a typical Marseillais apéro of pastis and panis chickpea fritters on the ocean-facing terrace. Santé! Well, that was Annie Kweber talking us through the delights of Marseille and its environs for Jarco in Scorpia. Jarco, I was scribbling down some things there from Annie's list. Did that satisfy some of your requirements, at least? Yes, it did give me a few ideas. I like the idea of her kind of taking you from dawn till dusk at the beach club as well and suggesting what you might have to drink. For me, it made me feel like I needed to be vaguely brave to be jumping off the rocks. What about you? Are you a headfirster? Oh, no, no, definitely not. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that I'll just observe from afar. I <laughs> wouldn't take part in it. Slowly but surely into the sea. I don't mind that. That's good stuff. Jarko Aristic, on the line from Skopje in Macedonia. Thank you very much for your question for the concierge service and bon voyage uh, for Marseille in the south of France uh, this summer. Thanks very much for your question. And next up from the United Kingdom is Frank Goulborn. Hello, Monocle concierge. Later in summer, in early September, we're flying to Bologna, but flying back home from Rome. We're undertaking our own little road trip, perhaps taking some of the towns of Emilia-Romagna and maybe going either east towards the Adriatic coast before taking a sharp left to Rome or maybe through Umbria. Um, we want to try and avoid the more touristy spots. Any recommendations of must-dos and must-sees? We're pretty flexible and we'll divert for anything you guys suggest. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Frank, for your question. With what to do on your road trip around Italy, joining us live in the studio is Chiara Ramella, who is Monocle's executive editor. Chiara, lovely to have you on the programme. He sounds like he's got the bare bones mm -hmm. of a pretty lovely trip in the making there. The bones of the road trip are fantastic. Personally, I would probably take the inroad, the slightly wilder road. It's nice, the idea to see some of the Emilia-Romagna towns mm -hmm. going towards the Adriatic, 
my pick would probably be Ravenna. It's a fantastic, beautiful medieval town and it has these incredible Byzantine mosaics in its churches. It really is a gem that not that many tourists from abroad tend to know about, but Italians are very, very fond of it and we do love our historical artworks. I would then, at that point, head inland. I'd probably skip the Adriatic coast. I'm maybe a bit snobbish here, but the Adriatic Sea is very calm, very pool-like. A soapy. <laughs> a little bit soapy. <laughs> it tends to be a favourite for those who have kids or for those who are there to party really hard, but not in a very cool way. So I would probably <laughs> skip... you not looking at me. <laughs> no, 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 because I would find you, obviously, in the best beach clubs of Salina, so no worries about that. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. And I would head inland at that point. You can skirt into Tuscany, but I would not go into your Florences, your Siennas, because much as they are obviously beautiful if what the game here is to avoid touristy bits then let's not do that Frank's keeping it <laughs> Frank's keeping it on the down low I think isn't he yeah yeah as yeah he, as he said uh, in his little missive is, yeah. is, is his car going to have a registration plate or <laughs> is it going really incognito he's got sort of like Aston Martin revolving James Bond number plates Frank sounds cool I like him I'd yeah. like to go on this road trip with yeah. him but alas I think I'm just going to direct him to Arezzo instead Arezzo is a wonderful town in Tuscany, lesser visited than its kind of more famous cousins, famously of a very popular jazz festival. So it's great in the summer. There's lots of music and culture going on. Again, a typical Tuscan town, but just not in the same vibe of the kind of you know, ruby red swishing uh, <laughs> tourist of Montalcino, Montepulciano. From there, let's head into Umbria. It was a great idea from Is Frank. Is this the sharp left? Uh, no, no, no. no. Do we hear, do we hear the sound we're of just squealing brakes? <laughs> we're just going deeper and deeper into the forest. But it was a great idea from Frank and I would encourage him to stick to it. Perugia is fantastic. Gubbio is amazing. Assisi, Foligno, they're all beautiful kind of hilltop towns. This ochre kind of colours, sandstone, amazing architecture. They are the image of the kind of the wild Italy that you have in your mind. Chiara, that was wonderful. That was a bravura debut performance on the concierge giving us the lowdown on that and i hope frank um you feel like your questions have been answered we can hear the distant scribbling of pen on paper and the screeching of the tires and exactly in that poor little fiat 500 i <laughs> just take out the right insurance frank uh chiara romella monocle's executive editor thank you very much indeed and if you have a question for the concierge, do please write to us send your questions to concierge at monocle.com my thanks to Anik Weber and Chiara Rimella. Up next, we're back on the rails for the lowdown. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind.
Austria is rightly proud of its efforts to revamp long-distance train travel across Europe. But one recently revived rail route hasn't been getting the attention it deserves, the Sudbahn or Southern Railway. It's an old imperial-era line that runs from Vienna to the Italian port of Trieste, connecting the Alps and the Adriatic. We dispatched our Vienna correspondent, Alexei Koryov, to find out what makes it so special. On a sunny day in June 2021, a large welcoming party gathered at Trieste Centrale. Among them were the city's leaders, some Catholic clergy, as well as dozens of journalists and onlookers. Their excitement was immense. The first direct train from Vienna in nearly 60 years was about to pull in. When at last the locomotive came to a stop, a cry of, long live Austria, rang out across the platform. Kurt Bauer, head of long-distance traffic at Austrian Railways, was on that train. There was a huge media event in Trieste. After the long way of negotiating with different parties, planning this train, it was really a a relief to see uh, that the train now really runs. It was amazing. We were sitting in the Slovenian dining car, we had breakfast, the, the sun was rising over the mountains, and then you're descending from Villa Pacina towards the sea and coast. It couldn't get any better, could it? <laughs> the line, known in German as the Südbahn, had been out of use since 1963. By that point, one of its sections was running through communist Yugoslavia, and the complexities of the Cold War made it too costly to operate. But when it was first opened in 1857, there were no such problems. It was all one country, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Zudban was a symbol of its power and scope. Now Vienna had a direct link to the sea. Yeah, Trieste has a, a history that is uh, linked to Austria and was linked to Austria for more than 600 years. It was the, one of the main harbors uh, in, in Europe, in the world, I would say, yeah? because uh, after building the Suez Canal, there was no better connection to Asia than uh, the Trieste connection. So it was uh, Trieste is uh, more or less uh, the most northern point of the of the Mediterranean Sea. Austrian architect Eric Bernard has written a book about Trieste and is himself an honorary Triestino. He says the impact of the Zudbahn was transformational. For many Austrians, it was the first time uh, that they came to a seashore and that they, they saw the Mediterranean Sea. And yeah, for, also for me, uh, I, I remember being there. I was uh, four or five years old and being there on the seashore, never having seen the sea before. Uh, so it became also a, a holiday spot. There were, it's not only Trieste, but uh, the Südbahn was uh, connected later on uh, to Abazia, Opatia today. And um, Abazia is, I would say, the lovely place. Uh, Trieste is still a harbor place, yeah, which is a little bit rough and hard, but Opatia and this uh, Rijeka, Fiume uh, region was the lovely place. And the Südbahn uh, ended there with a, an own hotel. Yeah, they built their own hotel. And this is uh, where the Austrian society went to Trieste and then to Opatia. Now that the Zudban is back, Trieste is once again becoming a holiday destination. To cater for the growing number of tourists, Bernard's architecture firm, BVM, 
collaborated with a Vienna-based hospitality company, Urbanots, to create a unique hotel right in the heart of the city. Teresa Kolmar is the general manager. What we do already in Vienna with refurbishing former retail shops into single hotel rooms, it was always our dream to do it one day also in other cities. In this special case, we are here at the Casa Minelli. We um, refurbished them to the Urban Art Studios Minelli, a whole building with in total 36 apartments and studios, building from the 19th century already, and the family Minelli used to live here in this palazzo. Mm. Um, so you were saying you were saying just now that you have always been looking at other cities. You were looking to expand. Why Trieste? Well, there's of course a very uh, historical uh, connection between Vienna and Trieste. If you uh, know Vienna and live in Vienna, Trieste will be very familiar to you. Trieste is as well a huge melting pot between Austrian, Slovenian and Italian urban flair. Trieste was historical part of, of, of Austria, of course. It is somehow the first connection to the world with the harbour for Alpine dynasty like Austria is. The way of living, the cafes, the lifestyle, of course, is a little bit more Italian flair already, but it still um, reminds you a lot of Vienna. It wasn't so long ago that Trieste was effectively a Cold War frontier town, isolated and severed from its centuries-old links to Mitteleuropa. But as I board the Zudbahn back to Vienna, I can't help rejoicing in the enduring power of the railways to unite and transcend. It will take me nine long hours to get back home, but in these hours I will travel through three countries, see the sea and the mountains, and surely by the end of it we'll want to do it all over again. For Monocle, I'm Alexei Korolov. Alexei Korolov there, on the rails, as ever. Next up, here on The Concierge, it is our travel interrogator. Since launching Suneva Fushi, the first luxury resort and spa in the Maldives in 1995, Suneva founder and CEO Sonu Shivdasani has maintained his long-standing commitment to sustainable hospitality. Kick-starting the trend of back-to-nature luxury resorts and creating barefoot luxury around the world, he visited us here at Midori House to talk about his vision and commitment to sustainability and luxury. My name's Sonu Shivdasani. I'm the guardian of the culture at Suneva. We've created our first resort in the Maldives back in 1995, so we introduced luxury travel to a destination which was largely mass market at that time. Over the years, things have progressed. Um, I set up a brand called Six Senses, managing other people's hotels. We sold that business in 2012 with a view to solely focusing on Suneva, which has always been our flagship brand. We're based in the Maldives with Suneva Fushi and Suneva Jani, and we also have Suneva Kiri in Thailand. When we started, it was very much about conservation, conservation of these beautiful places. So we would actually adjust our architecture to work around the trees. So we'd design a building, a villa, but then we'd walk on site and we'd see there's an incredible clump of screw pines, which take 20 years to get to that level. So we'd chop the building, uh, <laughs> slice it in two, have a corridor going through, and it made it fun, bridges, etc. So it actually, when we finished, the buildings became so much more interesting as a result of working around the nature. 
when you think about the context of the successful, so 30, 40, 50 years ago, people who'd come and stay at our type of resorts were the landed gentry, having largely inherited their wealth, fresh air, fresh food, space, privacy. Today, the successful are urban, self-made, where some of what the successful took for granted in the past is no longer available. It's difficult in an urban setting to get fresh food or fresh air even. Space and privacy are at a huge premium. So those things become important. So when you're um, coming to our resorts, the first thing we do, we take your shoes and we put in a shoe bag which says no news, no shoes, and you're walking barefoot. It creates a fantastic context. But you might be the most successful man in India or in Britain, living in London or in Bombay. But can you walk barefoot for a week or have that salad that was plucked fresh from the garden that morning or watch a movie where the stars are not just on the screen or talking about the stars, looking through the stars through one of the largest telescopes wherever we operate and having someone like Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, or Massimo Terengi, who runs the largest telescope in the Atacama Desert, or, or just our resident astronomers explaining the universe out there, or having a shower and listening to the hotel's Bose sound system with your favorite song already downloaded on the hotel's iPod and um, seeing the moon at the same time. So, you know, those, those are things. So when you become very close with nature, it becomes a, a fantastic luxury. And of course, it's, it's uh, the most sustainable option as well. So luxury, wellness and sustainability are not opposites. It's neighbor. They work hand in hand and feed off each other. We have televisions in our villas, but they're hidden. So quite often I'm looking at the guest satisfaction survey and the guest says it would be really nice if we had a TV in the room, but they're hidden in a trunk. So like, for example, my wife's designed these trunks that look like old, you know, Louis Vuitton trunks. And at the top one, there's a television. So you just have to lift it up or there'll be just a beautiful piece of driftwood on the wall, which looks like a piece of art. And then you slide it back and there's a TV behind that. So we hide it and the television's really just meant to be used for watching movies but not sort of cable. So we disconnect cable. If a guest wants to watch a match, then engineering will come in and sort of put the cable in. But by doing that, by having that shoe bag, which says no news, no shoes, putting, you know, the guest's shoes in the shoe bag before they've even stepped on our jetty, it creates that fantastic suspension of disbelief. If you think about Shakespeare's plays, he would often create a play within a play, like Midsummer Night's Dream, Bottom's Play. So you're watching the players play a play, and you think, okay, that, that suspends the disbelief. And it's the same way our islands sort of create that, the no news, no shoe bag. And then the last thing you want to do is to watch CNN because it brings you back to your reality. So I, I, I think that has a big impact. With our existing resorts, we're always reinventing them and adding new things. So Sinevajani, we're working on an exclusive private island near there. We're adding a few more food and beverage experiences. And then at both resorts um, in the Maldives, adding some aspects to the spa. We'll be opening our third resort in the Maldives at the end of the year. It's a bit of a secret. I don't want to reveal too much now, but, um, you know, there will be, that will unfold over the, over the coming months in terms of what we're up to there. And then we're working on projects in Thailand, more projects in Thailand. We like Singapore and very keen on Japan. Sonu Shiv Dasani there. And next up, we receive a letter from the ancient Greek town of Delphi. (laughs) 
couple of months back, Monocle's Andrew Muller attended the Delphi Economic Forum, where presidents and prime ministers gathered in the Greek mountains in search of wisdom and enlightenment maybe even an oracle. It's a good choice of location, and not just for the views. Delphi has quite the history of offering guidance to the powerful. There are two Delphis. One is a small and not terrifically prepossessing modern Greek town, redeemed by sensational views over the olive groves of the Plistos Valley as it meanders downhill from Mount Parnassus to the Gulf of Corinth. This is Delphi, the new town that is and there's honestly not a lot to it there's basically two streets really a few smaller avenues around them but basically two streets the good news is that those two streets are vastly overpopulated with absolutely excellent cafes and restaurants but it's not really for the cafes and restaurants that anybody comes to Delphi The other Delphi is somewhat older and is most of the reason the newer Delphi exists. From one to the other is about one kilometre and 3,000 years, give or take. And then quite a way uphill. The ancient Greeks thought this was the centre of the earth and granted that they didn't know much better, but nevertheless, when you actually come here, you can kind of see their point. I'm sitting right now at the foot of the amphitheatre in Delphi and looking down on the foundations of the Temple of Apollo, there are six pillars of varying height still standing and they they echo the colours of the, the mountains behind them. And the natural setting really is astonishing. When you sit here halfway up the mountain, you are gazing down. You can see this valley, which looks like it should have a river flowing through it, but instead just has this current of olive bushes, pine trees, cradled on the other side by these silvery granite buttresses. And then when you turn around and look back at the amphitheatre, and then further up the hill, the rocks change to orange, grey, silver, and today with a mercifully blue sky up above very very easy to see how you could come here and and start to think big thoughts about stuff which is of course the reason the greeks came here the ancient greeks didn't just come here for the views though the views would have been a perfectly decent reason they came to consult the Pythia, high priestess of the Temple of Apollo, otherwise known as the Delphic Oracle, from whose gibbered descriptions of her hallucinations the potentates of the day divined prophecy, as was meticulously recorded by chroniclers of the period. Take it away, Herodotus. Grinos, the son of Asinius, a descendant of the Theras, who has been mentioned, and king of the island of Thera, came to Delphi bringing the offering of a hecatomb from his state. And there were accompanying him, besides others of the citizens, also Vatos, the son of Polymnistos, who was by descent of the family of Ephemos, of the race of the Minieae. The Delphic oracle's record as a seer was, however, mixed. The Lydian king, Croesus, for one, gleaned from her delirious declamations that picking a fight with Persia would be a good idea. He duly did and got clobbered. But Delphi was not all credulous monarchs paying a mad witch for erratically reliable counsel. 
this is the stadium I'm at now, more or less the top of the trail, which is a, a decent old schlep down from where the road is. I can only surmise that a big part of being a successful athlete of this period must have been having the stamina necessary to get up the hill before you could even start the race. The stadium, you can kind of see what it used to be. That's still the benches where the spectators would have sat runs along one side and there's the curve around one end of it and you can see the, the ruins of the grand entrance at the others. It's where the Pythian Games were held, which at the time were second in importance only to the Olympic Games. So I guess from that we can conclude that the Pythian Games were very much the Commonwealth Games of the era. The value of sport was one of the things the ancient Greeks were right about. They were wrong about a lot of stuff too, but it is to their credit that they'd have been greatly interested in what. Delphi was where they came to be right and wrong, to launch humanity's ongoing inquiries into what we think we're doing here. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks to Andrew Muller from his dispatch from the Delphi Economic Forum. Much wit and wisdom there, of course. And that is it for today's programme. Thank you very much to our guests, Sean Muir and Sonu Shiftasani. Our producer was Tom Webb. Our researcher was Monica Lillis. Our studio manager, David Stevens. If you have a question for the concierge, please do drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. Join us next time when we'll be headed up the Sea to Sky Highway to see what's on tap when the snow melts in Whistler, British Columbia, amongst other treats. I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in and happy travels. Music.